0: in today's episode we open our bibles to second samuel chapter 7. king david desires to build a temple for god but he's told by the prophet nathan that it will be his son who will fulfill this task this revelation humbles david who realizes the eternal significance of god's covenant and promises god assures david that his descendants will establish an everlasting kingdom in israel And David responds with humility and gratitude, recognizing God's grace and faithfulness. Good morning and blessed Pentecost, and blessed and happy first day of summer. Today is Wednesday, June 21st, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is made possible in part by a generous gift from the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. LHF translates and publishes and distributes Lutheran books and materials that are Bible-based, Christ-centered, and Reformation-driven. Whether it's a catechism, a hymnal, a Bible storybook, or a devotional, LHF provides these resources free of charge to pastors and missionaries and lay people who need them. In fact, I remember not too many years ago that I took a couple boxes of Haitian Creole small catechisms with me and my dad. We went to Haiti, handed them out to all kinds of Christians and and even unbelievers. And in their own language, they were able to learn more about the basics of the Christian faith. So for you to learn more about LHF and how you can partner with them in this vital mission work, I invite you to go to their website at lhfmissions.org. Check them out and learn a lot more. See how you can help them and how they can help you. That's lhfmissions.org. Well, this morning we're going to be getting into Second Samuel chapter 7. But before we do that, why don't we just take a little trip down memory lane to yesterday. Yesterday we covered, of course, chapter 6. It was a great time of, you know, jubilation in Israel King David, he felt like the time was ready to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. You'll remember that the Ark represents God's presence among his people, essentially a throne upon which people can approach God. And of course, it uh well it didn't work out too well for some of them because I guess it'd been a long time since they had followed the, the rules that God had laid down for treating his ark. And so we see Uzzah. In a well-meaning but uh, ill-fated attempt to steady the ark when the oxen stumbled, and first of all, it wasn't even supposed to be on a cart, it was supposed to be carried, well, he touched it to keep it from falling into the mud, and for his efforts, Uzzah was struck down by God. Well, for his efforts, not really, but for his irreverence, which is a reminder to us all that even the best intentions can't substitute for obedience to God's command. We talked about that yesterday. Well, because of this incident, David was initially struck with fear, and he hesitated to bring the Ark into the city. So he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, where it stayed for a few months. But during that time, well, Obed-Edom and his whole household were blessed by the presence of the Ark. And so David, sensing that perhaps there was a way to uh, receive the blessings of God, uh, through the Ark, and maybe there is a way to uh, access it in, in, so that they don't uh, uh, fall into the same fate as Uzzah. David says, you know what? Fine, I'll take it. But this time David took it, but he had the people carry it as God had intended. And in this gigantic procession, 30,000 people uh, carried the Ark with shouts of joy and jubilation into the the uh, into the city of David, into Jerusalem. So the ark's entry into Jerusalem was the scene of a static you know, celebration. David shed his royal robes and put on a priestly ephod. He danced and he leapt with all his might before the Lord. And then you'll remember that at the end, Michael, his wife, she did not like his undignified behavior, uh, him dancing and Acting a fool in her eyes was not, uh, not the proper way a king should behave, but David told her that he had done nothing wrong. He was rejoicing before the Lord as he felt led, and that he would continue to, and we certainly um, learned a lot yesterday. Well, today we're looking ahead now about to dive into 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, this is a chapter I've already recapped it at the beginning, but it has far-reaching implications for both the Israelites and us today. So that's what we're going to dig into. But before we begin, I'd like to, well, let's let's have a word of prayer. Dearest, most holy and heavenly Father, we all look to you, O Lord. You give us all the things that we need at the proper time, and that includes not only things for our body, but also things for our spirit and soul. Lord, A part of that is the ability to read into your word, hear the Holy Spirit speak into our hearts, not only forgiveness, but also strengthening our faith in life, and we just give you thanks that we've been able to gather around the radio today and study your word, study King David, and today learn about the Davidic covenant, Lord, which you have kept in the person of Jesus. Uh, Strengthen us and our faith, have us learn that which you would have us know. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's dig into this text. I'm just going to read a few verses and then stop and talk about it a little bit. We'll see how that goes. This is going to be 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning with the first verse. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Now, when the king lived in his house and Yahweh had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for Yahweh is with you. You know what? I'm just going to go ahead and pause right there, right? We didn't even make it three verses. I already want to pause. But what's beautiful about this text so far is King David is in his house. So time has passed. And uh, Yahweh, it says Yahweh has given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. That word rest there is Sabbath, right? He's given him a Sabbath, a Sabbath rest from all of his enemies. We think about the Sabbath as, you know, sometimes I think we think of it a little too legalistically. We think of the Sabbath as being the day that we're not allowed to do something as opposed to the Sabbath being a gift of God. Uh, originally, the day of rest, the Sabbath rest, would have been Saturday when the Lord rested from all of his creation, and he wanted his people to rest. But you know what? In Christ is our rest, rest from all of our enemies, the same kind of rest that David is experiencing where he does not feel the compulsion to go to war. He doesn't feel threatened by the surrounding nations. He has a little a little respite here, a little peace. He's having a Sabbath rest well, we are rescued from our enemies in Christ, and so today we take our Sabbath rest. Uh, well, on the day, usually, you know, you can take that whenever Christians gather around the Word and sacrament, but typically we take that now with uh, on Sunday, right? When when Jesus uh, rose from the grave, uh, securing for us a Sabbath rest from our enemies of of sin, death, and Satan forever. But anyway, that's that word there, Sabbath, right? So David is at peace now. And being at peace for a little while, just like we think today, you, you get time to think. You know, today we have a peace. We have, a, we have almost too much time to think. But David's sitting around and he's contemplating all the things of his kingdom. And I, and I suspect that he's sitting in his fancy palace, beautiful cedar wood. And then he thinks about that ark, the thing that happened, what we talked about yesterday you know, the ark of God, which demands so much reverence that even the one who tries to steady it with his hand is sinning because he's not treating it with the reverence that God demands. So he's thinking about that ark. And while he's sitting in this cedar palace, the ark is in a tent. And David is just, I think, distraught. You know, this is the same man who so respected Saul's Appointment as the Lord's anointed, even though Saul was trying to kill him, he was so faithful to God that he, you know, never laid hands on Saul, even though he probably would have had some good reasons to. And here now he has this precious artifact of God, literally God's presence, and it's in a tent. Now, never mind that we see from scripture that God had instructed the people to make a tent in which the ark dwell, but but he still thinks it's just not right. I, I guess today would almost be like if you lived in this giant uh, giant mansion, and then every time you went to church, it was just this tiny little shack. And you would think, wow, you know, here I am when I go home. I get to live in this beautiful mansion and have all these beautiful things. And then when I go to worship God, who's the creator of the universe, I go visit him in this, in this tent or this shack, and you would start to think, too. You would feel guilty, if nothing else, that, that God's house is, is worse off than yours, so to speak. Well, that's David's concern here. He's the king, sure, but he's really the prince of Israel. God remains the king, and so where does the true king dwell? In a tent. So David says, he says, listen, you know, I, who doesn't say, but he, he's sitting here having the Sabbath rest, the benefits of God, and he's in his castle <laughs> or his palace, and, and the ark is just sort of unsettled, thrown into a tent. I, I'm I'm sure not disrespected, but certainly it's not living as David is living. So he goes to Nathan, right? Nathan's the prophet. He speaks for God, and Nathan says to the king, do go do all that is in your heart, for Yahweh is with you. Now I think that's interesting, because Nathan is supposed to be speaking for Yahweh, and he and he does. Um, but Nathan says to him, "Go, go for it. You know, you want to build God a house. That sounds good to me. Yahweh is with you." So he initially agrees that yeah, something's got to be done. That's just not right. But then we well we run into verse. Let's check that out. But that same night, the word of Yahweh came to Nathan Go and tell my servant David, thus says Yahweh, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. Wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest, right, Sabbath, from all your enemies. Moreover, Yahweh declares to you that Yahweh will make you a house. I'm going to pause right there. That's going to be the end of verse 11. I absolutely just, I'm just amazed at this. It, it is a little confusing, I have to admit, that that David goes to Nathan, and Nathan says, well, go and, and do what you think is right, but then when Nathan goes home and he's sleeping, Yahweh God comes to him and says, "No, wait, wait, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. He wants to go build me a house. Have I ever said I want a house? Have I ever said to anybody any of the any of the judges that, "Hey, why not living in a house of cedar?" You know, basically God's saying, "If I wanted a house, I would have said so." The point is that God is dwelling amongst his people. He's in that tabernacle at the, at the very beginning when we, and we, we heard that on this program when God had designed and, and, and commissioned this, this tabernacle in which he would live and within which would be the, the Holy of Holies. And it would contain the ark, And, and and God was living amongst the people in such a way that he was um, among them. He was in the center of their camp. And so, God says if I wanted a house I could have asked for one. But instead, I am going to make you a house. Now we're going to get to that. But let's let's look back to yesterday again. Yesterday one of the biggest problems is that Uzzah and really others thought that God needed their protection. They thought that they need to help out God. So if the if the ark's going to fall into the mud, They assumed that they were more holy than mud. (laughs) They were disobeying God, but the the mud's doing exactly what God commanded it to do. But they were trying to protect God, stand up for God. And this is what David's doing in a way. I mean, he has the best of intentions, but but God's saying, I don't need you to look out for me. Look, Look what I've done, right? I am the one who brought the people of Israel out of Egypt. And in all that time, did I compl- <laughs> complain? Did I command you to do something? Did I command you to build me a place? God wants to live amongst his people. He wants to be among his people, such is the nature of God. So God speaks to Nathan, right? And he contradicts Nathan's earlier advice and basically saying, Why do I need a physical temple? Right? I've had this nomadic journey along with Israel. I've never asked for a house. I moved along in a tent and a tabernacle. He has been mobile. He goes with the people, and it's not quite time for the people to settle down. So God establishes then the Davidic covenant, as we say. Right. So it says, now then tell my servant David, this is what Yahweh Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people. We haven't quite gotten to the end of that, but we're going to. And but he's saying, listen, I am doing for you. I don't need you to do for me. How often, brothers and sisters, do we think that we have to help out God? How often do we think that, you know, yes, God has given us instructions on how to live, but you know, I think we should probably uh, add our own reason and insight. You know, God needs us to do things for him. He needs us to defend us out in the world, but that's not true. God has given us his word, and what he wants us to do is be faithful to him. Now, don't don't misunderstand. God does say there's a time when he'll have a temple. He will, and we'll get into that later, but that time is not yet. He will tell David when the time has come, and of course, we, are, we already know because we know the story that that's going to happen through Solomon. That's going to be David's son. But we have this Davidic covenant starting where basically he reminds them that he is the one who brought them out. Um, and let's, uh, let's keep reading just a little bit. Verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers – here's the sort of second part of that covenant – as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and accordance with all this vision. And Nathan spoke these things to David. So so Nathan gives all this stuff that God has given him to tell him. And you know, Yahweh is really beginning to take David's presuppositions take his understandings about what it means to be a king or maybe again the word probably better is prince under the king uh, of of all uh, of all the universe god and he begins to realign him to what it really means to be a king you know <laughs> you uh, are going to build me a house he says no no i'm the one who have has built up you i'm going to build up you a house so Yahweh's first promise to David comes in verse 9. I will make a great name for you. So David's immediate reputation and his enduring legacy will continue. And that, and that makes sense, right? Because, we're, well, A, we're talking about David today. David we know as the type of Christ. That is, he, his life foreshadows in many ways uh, the Christ who would come. And uh, Spoiler alert, that's what we're talking about here. This, raise up your offspring after you. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house. Yeah, that's fulfilled by the immediate offspring, uh, Solomon. But that eternal kingdom, that house, the throne that lasts forever, well, that is the son of David, not Solomon, but Jesus Christ. But we're not quite there yet. (laughs) We're not quite there yet. So uh, in 710. It says, I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and I will plant them. So that place, what does that mean? When God says, listen, you want to make me, you know, I've cut off all your enemies, and I'm going to make you a great name, like the great ones of the earth. And I'm going to appoint a place for my people, and I will plant them. What's the question place there? That's the question. What does that mean? Does it refer to the land? over which David's now reigning, so the place of my people Israel will be this this land? Or, I tend to think, is he basically saying that place that you're wanting the ark to go, I will appoint that place. I will appoint them. I will plant them around it. So right now, there's still a mobility to God. Yes, he's still dwelling in a tent, but there is coming a time when my people will be planted so that, it says, they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Well, the people of God continue to be disturbed to this day. Of course, the people of God being all those who have faith, hope, and trust in Jesus. So what is he talking about here? This place that is a permanent place for God's people. This place that is a permanent place where God can dwell among his people. It, it's fulfilled time and again, but is it not ultimately fulfilled? In the last days, when Christ returns, he judges the living and the dead. He establishes the new heaven and the new earth where we dwell forever with God in our midst. So there's a lot of stuff going on here. As we see this prophecy from God, it's proleptic is the word. It gets fulfilled time and time again. So when he says, your son, your offspring will build a house for me. Well, that happens. He has a son. His name's Solomon. He builds a temple. But ultimately, the throne that lasts forever is Jesus, and then, of course, we enjoy all the eternal fruits of that when Christ comes back. It keeps getting fulfilled until it is ultimately fulfilled. But still, it says, I will plant them that they may dwell in their own place. That's Yahweh's third promise. It's related to the second, like I said. He's going to designate a place for his people. Is that going to be the promised land? Yeah. Yeah. Of course, right? They're, they're, they're continuing to take over the land that he's given them. Will they eventually be settled there forever? Well, sort of, only in the sense that there will be a place for them forever in which to be settled, and that is, of course, the new heavens and the new earth. But then we see here where he says, I'll be Israel, they'll dwell, they'll be disturbed no more, violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people. And then I love this. I will give you rest, Sabbath, from all your enemies. So we see here that Yahweh promises David security and peace. But do the people of Israel find that on this earth? Well, no, they don't. Do we find that on this earth? Are we, who are the people of Israel now, the the believers in Jesus, are we living a life that is completely um, <laughs> completely protected from any sort of trouble? You know, do violent people never afflict us? Do we have any more problems with the uh, enemies? Um, do we have complete rest from our enemies, not only of this world, but also of sins, Satan and death? No, no, we still are um, in in battles with those things, even though the war has ended. So, really what's being talked about here is not only just sort of some peaceful times to come and Solomon building a temple, but as I've said before, eternal life with God. So then we get into the sort of the meat of it. Verse 12 again, when your days are fulfilled, that means when when it's time for you to go, David, and you lie down with your fathers when you've died, I will raise up your offspring after you. That's singular, by the way. In English, that could be plural or singular, but your your offspring, not your offsprings. So I will raise up your descendant, your child, singular, after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. So this is the, the sixth promise, right? So we have Yahweh promising David security and rest. It says that... Um, I will build a house for you. Uh, So David's wanting to build a house for Yahweh, but instead Yahweh says, David, your dynasty, your house is going to be established. I'm going to build one for you. So his sixth promise here, again, refers to Solomon right? because it's going to come from your body, but he's going to build a house for Yahweh's name. So I will raise up your offspring after you. I will establish his singular kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. So now we're thinking Solomon. But then I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So we have a reiteration of that other promise that that, there's going to be this eternal legacy for David. But that legacy isn't David. The legacy is in his offspring, and it's not Solomon either. So when your days are fulfilled, when you die, I'm going to raise up an offspring, and I'm going to establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, if this next part doesn't sound like Jesus, you're not listening, right? I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, the problem with this is what happens next because then it says when he commits iniquity, that's sin, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the son of men. So you might think, wait a minute. Jesus is without sin. And of course he is, but does he not take on the sins of all people out of his love? Was he not disciplined with rods and with the stripes of men when he was beat on his way to Golgotha? And yet, verse 15, my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. So yes, he's talking about Solomon. Yes, he's talking about David, but ultimately This is fulfilled in Jesus. This is what we mean when we say that the Old Testament points forward to Christ, and the New Testament reveals who that Christ or the Messiah is. So we see this being fulfilled time and again. Verse 16, and here's that rest of the Davidic covenant. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. David's not going to live forever. Solomon's not going to live forever. But we have in Luke, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. Who's he talking about? Who's he talking about? Well, that's actually the angel Gabriel. He says, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Folks, it's all about Jesus. Let's think about that as we take just a few moments to go to break. But when we come back, I'm going to keep on going and we're going to read uh, more about how Nathan is telling David about Jesus. See you on the other side. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. Uh, With me today is nobody, as you can tell. I'm just going to go at it solo, folks, but I'm happy that you're here today. You know, I always tell you, but it's important that you know all the different ways that you can tune into the program. Not everybody knows. Or maybe you have some friends and family and they say, well, you know, I'd love to listen to KFUO and Thy Strong Word on AM850 in St. Louis, but I don't live in St. Louis. Well, let them know that they can actually subscribe to this or really any of KFUO's programs as a podcast, right? Just go to their favorite podcasting platform, search for the name of the program and sign up. But you know what's even easier is the KFUO Radio mobile app. You can go on the Play Store on Andrew or the App Store on iOS or Apple, uh, search for KFUO Radio, download that. And what's really neat is you can just play the live stream of the radio station just like you're listening to it on the radio but you can also like podcasts subscribe to listen to all the different programs including thy strong word um then another way to do it maybe that's not your bag is you can also just go on the website kfuo.org forward slash thy strong word and you can check out all the past programs uh, going back, all the predecessor hosts, it goes back a long way. So if you want to compare me to, say, uh, Pastor Brady Finner, you can do that. Right? You can check us out, see see which one of us is better, and then email me and tell me why it's me. No, I'm just kidding. I'm friends with Brady. So, But I tell you what, if you uh, want to share your thoughts or questions about this or anything else, I'm happy to hear from you. Um, I'm going at it alone today, so if I make a mistake, feel free to email me and let me know. But you can email me at PastorBoo at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook. I don't I do not do the Twitter thing. I, I kind of tried that, but uh, it's not really my style. I'm still on Facebook. You can find me, though, Phil Boo, P-H-I-L-B-O-O-E. Just search for me. Um, I think I'm the only one. And, and connect. Uh, we can stay in touch that way. Well, before the break, we were just getting into how... God is giving David what we now call the, the Davidic covenant, saying that his dynasty, his name, his throne will last forever and that he will give him rest from his enemies. Now, looking just real quick at 16, it says, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever forever. Now, I've already read to you from the words of the angel Gabriel to Mary that this is fulfilled in Jesus, so that's without dispute. But a lot of people do kind of dispute this, especially those who don't understand that this is talking about Jesus, because they'll say, well, didn't God break his promise when he allowed the Babylonians to conquer Judah, right? I think that was 586, um, that the independent political rule of Davidic kings was gone, right? Um the line of david continues through israel's exile it continues afterwards uh, the family drops into obscurity uh, after the governorship of zerubbabel but it continues right because it ends up being fulfilled in jesus so we do know that what this is talking about isn't necessarily the the human kings and the political kingdom of israel for those who might confuse that with say the modern-day nation of Israel, this is talking about Jesus. God had promised through the prophets that the line of the Davidic kings would one day be reestablished, right? Isaiah 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Isaiah 9, 7, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of Yahweh will do this. Jeremiah 23. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Ezekiel, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. Right, this is way after david and he shall feed them he shall feed them and be their shepherd and i yahweh will be their god and my servant david shall be prince among them i am yahweh i have spoken i could keep going to amos and uh and hosea uh, jeremiah you know so with the coming of christ the messiah right god's anointed the same term used for saul the same term used for david now Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed, he is the ultimate descendant of David. He is the ultimate king of the Jews. And so God does not uh, break his promise. He fulfills it eternally. Now, with that said, don't misunderstand. These prophecies can be fulfilled time and again until they are fulfilled in their ultimate or or their, their most fulfilled form and that's with Jesus. But he certainly is also talking about uh, having a kid, having a son who's going to build a literal house too, who's going to make a name for David. Um so those things happen also. So I guess my question to myself I suppose is what what is David thinking? When he hears these words from Nathan, is he thinking quite literally, okay, I'm going to have a son and then he will build the temple for God? which is true or is he also thinking of this eternally is, is he thinking of the Messiah to come um you know that's this is one of those things where I'd be interested to hear what another pastor has to say but I'll just tell you what I think I think he knows you know I, I think we're not given all the words that Nathan told him there's probably likely a discussion amongst them and Nathan would have understood that this prophecy is proliptic that it That he doesn't have the timeline in his head, but he knows it's going to be fulfilled. One helpful way to understand how perhaps the prophets might have seen prophecies is I I grew up down in North Carolina. I grew up in the mountains, and we don't have giant mountains like they do in some parts of the world like Colorado and that kind of thing. But we have these pretty big mountains, rolling hills, and and when you're standing on – let's say you're standing on top of a mountain. And you're looking across at all the peaks and you can see all the peaks, right? You can see this peak and you can see that peak. But what you can't tell is the distance between the peaks. You can kind of tell that one is in front of the other and then there's another. But because of your perspective, you can see all the individual peaks of the mountains. But you don't really know if, you know, that peak is 10 miles away from the next one or one mile away from the next one. Um, That is one good way to think about the prophecies. The prophets look out and they see, I see a descendant. I see someone building a house. I see someone also building an eternal throne. And he sees all of these things and and he reveals these things as they're revealed to him. But what he's not given is times, right? Okay, well, you know, uh, in about... However many years, then we're going to have this Babylon thing. And then however many years we're going to have the Messiah actually is going to come. And then he, he doesn't know that God hasn't revealed that to him. So he tells these things to David, but I'm certainly had a discussion about it. So I think David understands. And part of that understanding is revealed in the next section, because we call this part the David's prayer of gratitude because, well, that's exactly what it is. Let's see. Verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before Yahweh and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord Yahweh. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord Yahweh. And what more can David say to you? for you know your servant, O Lord Yahweh. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Yahweh God, for there is none like you and there is no God besides you according to all that we have heard with our ears. Let's pause just for a moment. That's the end of 22. So what I love about this is it says David went in and sat before Yahweh. So where would he have gone to sit before Yahweh? Well, he would have went into that tent, that tent that he didn't think was good enough for God. He goes in there and he sits before Yahweh and he rightly basically reflects on the fact that God's ways are not his ways. God's thoughts are not his thoughts. It's it's, it's very much like a Job moment except in reverse <laughs> whereas god looks at job and says uh, you know who are you right where where were you when i laid the foundations of the earth who do you think you are david goes before god and in humility is like gosh who am i who am i yahweh he he shows this sense of self awareness about how how lowly he is how god is so great now, this phrase reoccurs by the way when uh, in exodus um I shouldn't say reoccurs, but has occurred, when Moses also questions his worthiness for God. Right? Who am I, sovereign Yahweh? We think about Jesus, which is always good to do. But in Matthew 23, verse 12, Jesus says, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. When we come before the Lord, we cannot help if we have our eyes open to God's greatness, but understand that we are literally, as we Lutherans say, poor, miserable sinners. Uh, I had a Baptist friend of mine, Baptist preacher friend, um, who uh, knows that uh, this is how we often start our liturgical services, right? We, we, we come before God, and we get our hearts right. We say, we, are, we confess our sins, we are poor, miserable sinners. We deserve nothing but death and hell, and yet God has redeemed us for the sake of Christ. But we say, poor, miserable sinners. And I was talking to him, and he says, you know, you know, we, we of course believe that we're sinners too, but we do not focus on it as much as you Lutherans do. <laughs> well, could, would you say that to David? Yeah, because that's what David's saying. He's saying, compared to you, O Lord, I am nothing. And I think that sense of self-awareness is important for us. Um, I cannot, for the life of me, remember the song, but it's by Elvis Presley. And in that song, he says that when he gets to heaven, he's gonna shake God's hand, shake Jesus' hand. Um, and I even as a teenager, I hear this song and I go, that's incredibly presumptuous, even for the king, right? That's really presumptuous. You know, you're not gonna go into heaven and you know, and just say, Oh, hey, how you doing? Nice to see you. No, he's God. There is a position of of lowliness that we have, even in our redeemed state. We're still not God, and, and I think that's that's we what we saw last time too. Yesterday, when we talked about the style style of worship that God has commanded when it came to the come to the ark, and and they thought, no, yeah, God's just our buddy. We're gonna we're gonna do the way we think is fit, and that's not right. Someone died as a result, so. We need to recognize that before God, we are poor, miserable sinners, and in doing so, that makes his redemption of us through Jesus that much more poignant, that much more great, because then we realize that once we understand that we are deserving of death and hell, we can be all the more grateful that God has deigned to save us from it. So then we read a couple more verses, and and it reveals just David's astonishment at that grace that i was just talking about you know he, he says you know as if this weren't enough you've also spoken about the future house of your servant like i wanted to make you a house and here you are o oh lord for me a mere human a mere man wanting to make me a house now of course we know that that house is for the purposes of god but still what an amazing gift that I want to make you a house, and you say, no, I'm going to make a house for you, David. So he's astonished, and David then, of course, acknowledges one of the main attributes of God, and that is he's omniscient, right? For you know your servant, and he attributes this great thing that's going to happen, of course, to God's grace, nothing that he did. That's what he says, because of your promise, and according to your own heart, You have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. So you might think, well, David was a Lutheran, right? (laughs) No, no. It's just David is speaking the word of God as we also believe teaching confess that, that we are not saved. We don't receive the benefits of God because of our own merit. God didn't say, I'll tell you what, you build me a great house, David, you build me a a, a wonderful temple, and I'll bless you, and then I will make your house last forever in exchange. No. He says, you know what, I'm fine in the tent. There will be a day coming. Don't worry about it, David. But for now, I'm going to make your house. I'm going to make your kingdom, your throne last forever. And then he says, and I'm going to pick it back up again, he says, Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is none besides you, according to all that we've heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name, and doing great for them, great and awesome things, by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods? And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Yahweh, became their God. That's the end of 24. So stopping once again, of course. So David transitions. He, He starts talking about God's uniqueness, right? So first it was his omniscience. Now it's his uniqueness. This is also repeated throughout the Old Testament, by the way. And he acknowledges what we might call a scandal of particularity. That is, that God chose a particular people. He chose a particular time in history to call those people through Abraham. He he chose specific times to redeem them from their slavery in Egypt. He chose specific times to bring them into the promised land. He chose specific times, particular times, to then fulfill his promises time and again until that particular time when Jesus comes on the scene. And the reason why it's a scandal is because people today would be like, well, that happened 2,000 years ago. Or I would believe if God did something today, it's a scandal because they say, well, why did he do it back then and not today? Well, if he did it today, people 2,000 years from now would be saying, why did he do it back then and not today? Right? So God's timing is perfect. But David recognizes that, and, and so he recognizes the peculiarity of, of God's interaction in, in history. You know, He says, listen, you've chosen a people, Israel, a, a singular people. Now, of course, they were to be a nation of priests. They were to go out and, and, and proclaim the, the Yahweh, pro- proclaim the one true God to all people. But he acknowledges that you have chosen us. There's no one like you. There's no one like your people and you're with us forever. So, he reinforces those themes of redemption and and God's eternal covenant, which of course points forward to Jesus. You know, in the New Testament, we see time and again God reminding us that we are Israel, um we are uh, God's uh, people, that that's that singular people that particular people today. Uh Peter says, St. Peter says in Acts 4, uh, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven to given to mankind by which we must be saved. This peculiarity continues even then. Right, this redemption through Jesus Christ. Right, we are saved through the name of Jesus. We are made part of the people of Israel. So he he we can express the same things that David expressed, Is my point. So let's keep on going with verse twenty-five. David continues, and now, O Yahweh God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant, and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, Yahweh of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now... Lord Yahweh, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord Yahweh, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. That ends the text. So David shows now in this very sort of last section of the prayer his complete, confidence and trust in God's promise. And you might think, you know, what's well, kind of weird because he then asks, well, now I want you to confirm what you said is true. And I want you to do the thing that you have spoken. Um but this isn't coming from a place of of lack of faith. This isn't him saying, well, boy, I sure hope this is true, God, or will you please do the, these things? No, he he believes he will. Really, in a way David is hmm, how can I say this without anybody getting the wrong idea? David is, is, is telling God that he's looking forward to what he has said he will do. <laughs> you know, I, I don't want to say he's commanding God to give him what he's promised, but, but he has so much faith in God's promise that he's basically saying, well, do it, right? I, I, I hear what you're saying. I don't deserve it. You are great. I am lowly. So please do the thing that you have spoken concerning your servant. Do as you have spoken. And and he knows that once he does that, once he keeps his promise, and he does believe he will, that what, 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 what he has said will happen will happen, right? God will make his house endure forever, his house being David, but ultimately being God's house, right? God is building a house for himself through David, and that's sort of why it ends here because at the very beginning, David says… I want to build you a house. And God says, no, I'm going to build you a house. But what we find out at the end is that God is building his own house. It's not about Solomon building a temple. It is about God saying, I don't need anybody to build me my eternal house. Yeah, Solomon's going to build a temple, but my eternal house is going to be built through you, David. Through Solomon, through your line, and ultimately through Jesus. This repetitive use of "forever" we hear here, here, uh, 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 here, here, here—that's interesting, right? But anyway, emphasizes the eternal nature of God's promise. God says, "I don't need a house for you to make me one. I'm going to make it," and that finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, a descendant of David whose kingdom is eternal. We see the angel Gabriel telling Mary about that. He will be great, he says. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will have no end. Boy, it began with David saying, God, I want to build you a house, and it ends with God building a house for himself through David, a house in which we all live because of the faith that we've been given in Jesus' sacrifice. Brothers and sisters in Christ, just know that as we go throughout this world today, and you might have people who set themselves up as enemies against you, have the same compassion on them that Jesus had on us, and you might run into people who are um, um, harassing, who are violent towards the people of God. Remember this promise that those things are fulfilled um, or, or taken away, I should say, in Jesus. And that while we don't experience the benefits of this salvation until he returns, that return is soon. So pray that Christ returns soon. But unless he does return by f- before tomorrow, we're going to be back together tomorrow, you and I. And when we do, we're going to turn to chapters 8 and 9. That's a little bit of a shift in tone because now it becomes about David's remarkable military victories as the king of Israel. He defeats the Philistines. He defeats the Moabites and the Arameans and the Edomites. And he establishes his authority over the surrounding nations. So that little uh, Sabbath rest that gave David just enough time to think about making a house for God. Well, (laughs) it it gets that rest goes away pretty quick because he has some work to do. But he does with God's help. And he takes those spoils of war and he dedicates them to the Lord. And he appoints officials to administer justice and peace to his kingdom. But then what's really great, which I think is the best part of of tomorrow's text, is that David then remembers his covenant with Jonathan, right? That's the son of Saul. They're dead, of course. And he says, you know what? I want to know if there are any surviving members of Saul's family. What do you think the king is going to do with that information? What do you think King David, who was hunted down like a dog by King Saul, is going to do when he finds the last remaining member of Saul's family, whose name, by the way, is Mephibosheth? He finds Mephibosheth, Jonathan's crippled son, and he takes not vengeance, but mercy, He restores to Mephibosheth all the land that belonged to Saul. He makes him essentially a prince. He invites him to eat at his table as one of his sons, such as the mercy of David. We're going to talk a lot about that tomorrow and, of course, about Jesus. So until then, folks, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.